This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Rick Jero. Rick is someone who has an interesting combination of credentials. He's an alternative career counselor and an associate professor of religious studies at Vassar College in New York, and the author of several books, including The Alchemy of Abundance, The Art and Science of Manifestation. He's also published numerous audio learning programs with Sounds True, including the Advanced Manifestation Program and the Ultimate Anti-Career Guide. Rick is someone who's very dear to me, someone I consider a kind of brother. And it was my honor to speak with Rick about how we can align our talents and desires with the hidden currents of the universe, what he calls the art of manifestation. Rick, I think people in the Sounds True audience know you as the anti-career counselor. Right. (laughs) And, you know, at a time when uh, so many people uh, have either lost their jobs or are interested in changing jobs, it's a a good time to explore what does it mean to have an anti-career. So so what do you mean by that, the anti-career? Well, you know, the anti-career started from my New York background because people don't come to New York to raise a family. All these people come to the city to create or manifest some career dream, and somewhere in the middle they would land in my office and want to figure out what went wrong. And so the the, the basic polemic behind the anti-career was don't crucify your life on the cross of the career. Don't let the working situation hang you up so dramatically that you forget who you are or why you came here. So it's a challenge. And it's a challenge to apply the intelligence of creativity and manifestation to the workplace so that one does not become a complete wage slave. Mm -hmm. Now, you use this term manifestation, and that's a a word that has a lot of different meanings for people. You know, I want to manifest. What, What do you mean by it? That, yeah, that's, that's tricky, and um, all these words, manifestation, abundance, alignment, are, are really tricky terms, and people use and mean them in different ways. But from the, the technical vocabulary that I work with, technically out of Bhagavad Gita and Sanskrit language, manifestation meant, was called vyakta, which literally meant visible, the aspect of the universe that is visible to the human being is that which is manifest. The white cloud, the blue sky, the green grass, um, the workplace, the train running in front of you, the cars, the food on your table, this is all manifest. And what is not manifest is what is in, in dormancy or invisibility. And things keep circulating in and out of manifestation. My sense, this idea that I want to manifest this, is it's not a complete misnomer, but it's a very small portion of what manifestation actually is. And I think it's been 
I don't want us to go overboard and say a tragedy. It's kind of been a fitting tragedy, just as our economy is a fitting tragedy, that a lot of the rhetoric of manifestation has been hijacked by proponents of individual selfishness and greed. That's not what it's about at all, but neither is it about just giving up on the world and sealing yourself off. So manifestation, as I understand it, has to do with the the intelligent and compassionate interaction with the visible world, and particularly, you know, what visible world? The one that's put on your plate, the one that's been given to you. Mm-hmm. This, I think, um, particularly in the United States, is so crucial because so much of our um, spirit and so much of our force has been about moving ahead and kind of erasing where we come from. But the the process of manifestation really encompasses the timeless end time and past and future and and the need to acknowledge where we came from, who was there. Um, I think this is really crucial. Now, what are you talking about? Are you talking about my biographical family when you say where I've come from? You know, or? I'm talking about your biographical family. I'm talking about your cultural history. I'm talking about your dream texts, um, all of the above. Um, and the most concrete example I can think of is a uh, report I actually saw on the news in an airport, since now they have televisions all over the airport. And... Um, it said that the greatest fear among Americans, someone took a poll, is that they won't have enough money to retire. Yeah, sounds right. Yep. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, what is going on here? Still, we're one of the richest countries in the world. Still, we have huge resources. Why, why this huge anxiety? And the one thing I could think of was, if you are not rooted reconciled, connected to the ground upon which you stand, you're always going to be going someplace and anxious that you're not going to be supported. And the way I see this in terms of our cultural history, as a, as a nation, there's been some acknowledgement of, of the slavery history, but there's been almost no real public acknowledgement of the genocide of Native peoples, the taking of the land, the broken promises. And, and to me, this is sitting underneath the facade of, you know, stores and fast food places. And until things like this are brought to light and reconciled in some form, there's going to be no comfort around where we are. So that's what I mean, that the cultural history, the shadows that are not expressed, as well as the results of what has happened. Now, what you're saying, though, I mean, it's very, um, I think, unrelated to what most people think about when they think about manifesting. Exactly, because we're, you know, we're the fast food nation, fast enlightenment nation. We want results very quickly, and we live by, by ratings. You know, but the ratings are like the waves in the ocean. And, and that's why, and even, I have to, I'm, I'm sorry, but even the, the rhetoric of living in the present often misses the reality that the cultures, the history, the land that we come from is very real. And that is part of the plate that we were given. We were born with this stuff on our table. And therefore, we might not be responsible for it, but we need to be responsible to it. I can't see any real deep depth sense of peace 
and reconciled abidings uh, for people who want to cut off from their family, their history, their land, as a lot of contemporary programs suggest you do, reinvent your life out of nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, just to take this a, a little further, I mean, I could certainly imagine someone listening, um, if they haven't turned off at this point, who says, look, <laughs> you know, I'm here in the present and I'm envisioning the future that I want. I don't want to go back and think about my, you know, terrible, abusive father. Forget all that. I've cleared my past, let alone the crimes that have happened on this land to Native Americans by people that I have, you know, no connection with. I'm here in the present. I see the clouds. I got that part when Rick said it's about what's visible. And here's what I want to make visible. I want to make this fabulous future career visible. What's wrong with this guy, Rick, Mr. You know, anti-career now, you know, anti-the-present moment? What's up with him? Well, there's so much wrong with me, I can give you the list. <laughs> but but here's, here's the thing. You, you mentioned in that little um, diatribe, I've cleared my past. How have you cleared your past? You, the, the hypothetical you yeah, were talking, how exactly. have you cleared your past? Well, I think that's the, a very important question that you're pointing out. Yeah. Because why is it that all these people who are imagining what they want never get it? I yeah, mean, I'd, like to, I'd like to actually know that. Let's talk Turkey here. I was just in L.A. Like I, 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 Nine out of ten people I met in L.A. is either a yoga teacher, a life coach, and, or an aspiring actor. And the interesting thing to me is all the yoga teachers are competing with one another over studio space and this and that. And, you know, I never saw, like, business competition as part of the yoga sutras. It's, it's a new invention. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and everyone who doesn't know what to do becomes a life coach. Right, exactly. <laughs> So my so, you know, why is it that people imagine what they want and they don't get it? One of the reasons is that it's not all about you. You are one little dot among eight billion minds, and those eight billion minds on the planet are connected with a gazillion minds in the past and future. And you can only manifest from the center of gravity of the prevailing thought forms of where you are. And so if you're living here, you have to contend with all the thought forms of the past and future of this land and work with it because you really can't step out of history. Even if you are out of history, if you're an enlightened Krishnamurti or someone like that, you still have to work within history and language. So that's one reason. Another reason why people aren't getting what they want is because they don't know what they want. Most of the things that people say they want are reactions to cultural propaganda. How many of us have really done the work and dug deep into ourselves and talked to our contemporaries, our families, and our friends, and really come out with, you know, what do we want? Because what I want has to be in relationship to you. You know, in, in L.A. and every place else, one of the first things people learn in manifestation is to manifest parking spaces. But what if someone else needed that parking space more than you? What if someone really needed that space? So without some kind of ethical underpinning, without some kind of community connection, without some kind of we, the I manifesting what I want is almost satanic. Sorry, but hmm. I'm getting dramatic. <laughs> it's okay. Keep going, man. Keep going. <laughs> I mean, my working definition of the devil is the private pursuit of happiness because it, it's going to lead to amazing misery you'll be king midas you'll have everything you want everything will manifest right in front of you 
like uh, Tom Cruise at the end of Vanilla Sky, and there's no other. It's the ultimate loneliness. It's the, it's the ultimate opposite of of being one with everything and everyone. Okay, but so here here I want to manifest uh, different qualities in my life. I don't okay. I don't know what other people want. Can't I just figure out what I want? I mean, how do I how do I do this in relationship with others? That's a really important question, Tammy. I think that's one of the crucial questions, and I think that's one of the crucial errors that people are making. That even if you are exiled onto a desert island forever, there will be thousands of people manifesting in your mind. There's really the, the, the idea that I'm going to, go to introspect and discover an answer and then come out and tell the world kind of flies in the face of, of reality. In fact, careers are created through relationship. Life paths are created through meeting people. Any career professional will tell you that you should put 20% of your energy into sending out resumes and 80% of your energy into making personal connections. So I would argue that manifestation is revealed in relationship, and that is why when we do our manifestation work in workshops and circles and so on and so forth, it's not enough for someone to say what they want. It's much more powerful if you can say what you want and someone can listen to you and give you feedback. And then we have, we have something that can grow. Okay, but still, uh, help me understand. I want to access uh, an inner dream. How is it that I'm informing that with other people and the way other people okay. are in my life? And All right. First, I wasn't being completely fair. Um, there is definitely a part of accessing an inner dream, a, a, a part of our responsibility of getting clear about what's important now in in things like the ultimate anti-career guide, I assign that to the third chakra, to the sense of taking the responsibility of being clear about oneself. But then the next step, which I assign to the fourth chakra, is taking your dream, taking your idea, and putting it at the, offering it to your community. And, and, and whether it's your community of investors or community of supporters, the people who are interested in your product or your service, there's both a dream and a community action. And I have met hundreds, so I assume there's thousands and thousands of disgruntled people living in basements and attics all over the world who complain that the world doesn't understand their genius and their vision. But the fact of the matter is they've done very little to, to help the world understand. So yes, you have a dream. You have a, for the Greeks called it a daimon, an inner spirit that is pushing you toward a destiny. But that destiny is always collective. It's always interwoven with others. You can't get born alone. Mm-hmm. A vision can't get born alone. Yeah, I remember from the anti-career guide, uh, one of the things you said that really stuck with me, that a marketplace is your community. That if you have exactly. products you want to sell or whatever, you're going to sell them yeah. to a marketplace. That marketplace is, in a sense, a, your field of connections. Right, right. And and I think that the real innovative, evolutive potential in our time and the greatest challenge is the rethinking and regenerating of community. This is where evolution can happen. Aurobindo saw that. Um, it's not, you know, Rick Jarrow's idea. And this is my point about manifestation. The energy of manifestation, the energy of evolution, the energy of awakening is 
flowing through all of us like a tidal wave, and we each refract a piece of it. And if we, if we can share it in a uh, an evolutive and synergistic way, we may find a way through these times instead of everybody getting up on a soapbox and telling you know their vision. Mm-hmm. Now, when you think of the reinvention of community, I know that means a yeah. lot of different things to different people. What 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 kinds of things does it mean to you? Okay, here's what it means to me, basically. Um, community has been a very scary word because historically we have seen communities destroy individuals. Uh, and still now in my trips, I make frequent trips to Eastern Europe to work, and I see all the the old houses where people were afraid to put anything bright on their door because they didn't want to be noticed because the police would come. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we have... Uh, we have, on one hand, the history of communal tyranny. N- you know, not only fascists and communists, but, you know, historically the community has has put scarlet letters on people, you know, not let them express themselves. On the other hand, the the fallacy of individualism has revealed itself in people bopping around the freeway in, in California and in L.A. just wasting gas, uh, that you can't just create your own world. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, we have our commitment, historical cultural commitment since at least the Reformation to the freedom of the individual. On the other hand, we have the recognition that the individual needs others. So I see the challenge, the regenerative challenge, is creating communities that do not suppress individual freedom. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, because the two have been an anomaly. The two have never gone together. Have you ever participated in such a community that doesn't suppress I've individual freedom? I've participated in a lot of communities, you know, and most of them have been failures. And so I learned, I've learned from those failures. Um, I don't know if, yeah, why not? Let's, let's lay it all out. You know, the yeah, community let's go for it. that I was a the Hilda community that I was a part of in the in the 80s, you know, these people bought land, and before that community got formal, th- th- there was an amazing collection of people who used to come every Thursday night to St. John the Divine's Cathedral and jump up and down and, and share stories and meditate. And during those years, I remember living in New York, I moved about six times. I never had to call a mover because there was always someone who would help me. However, the minute things got organized and formalized and fear-based and people got on the land, the first thing was um, this community needs morality. Well, whose morality? You know, what does that mean? It means um, no same-sex couples living together. It means, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and, and the whole thing just blew up. The whole thing imploded. And it imploded in the most um, kind of what's a good word, unseemly but appropriate way possible, uh, which is, the you know, Hilda's own children, not her biological children, but the people who she, who she brought up, they kind of led the charge of rebellion. Hmm. So I've seen things come and go and fall apart. And nevertheless, um, one of the things that keeps me going is for the last, you know, 10, 15 years, I have been doing these week-long workshops at places like Esalen Omega, which are, I see them as transitional communities. Angelus Arian calls them a community of strangers. You know, people come together and listen to each other in a, in a supportive, non-judgmental way, help people manifest their visions. 
So the step beyond this, we have we have been working at creating a manifestation community, um, which is you know unorganized, but nevertheless people coming together to support each other's creative process and path. This is the place where I think work has to be done. Mm-hmm. The, and, and one of the big pieces is the issue of leadership versus control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are lots of communities that evolve easily when one charismatic person kind of abusively tells everybody else what the story is. But to me, those are the retrograde communities. And the, the real challenge, and I think it started with the formation of the United States of America through the Iroquois nation, is, is coming into council and learning processes of decision-making and, and, and living together that are not necessarily top-down. And it's very hard stuff. I can imagine someone listening to this and thinking, like, you know, okay, I, I thought I was going to hear about manifestation, and now I'm listening to sort of hippie talk about community. How hippie. is the, Yeah. Hippies have not been able to organize anything. Okay. How <laughs> is this going to... But you know what I'm saying. We're talking about land yeah. and people living together and being themselves and, you know... It's not about living together. That's, I think that's one thing, that the communities of the future are happening on many... You know, you could argue that Facebook is, has become a, a futuristic community. Um, people don't have to live together to work together. I think that's very, very important. But people need think tanks and places to incubate and manifest their higher visions. So for you, you see that to think about manifestation and take it seriously without considering this question of community and who's my community, there'd be like a missing piece if you don't put those two things together. Yeah, that's a nice way of saying it. And in a way... um, I'm giving it voice because I don't think it's been sufficiently recognized. Yeah, I agree it's, with you. You know, if I just have my thing and, and, and I have my audience and you have your thing, you have your audience, you know, the bonfire of vanities, everybody's playing to the audience and they have to keep playing harder and harder because the, what everybody really wants, which is heart connection, is missing. And then because people aren't getting it in in many different ways, then they fixate on romantic relationships like this is my be-all and end-all, I need this, I have to have this. So we need ways of working with each other. And and by the way, a, a business can be a community. I think one of the great engines of transformation in contemporary society will be and is small business because the small business leader has the opportunity to create a culture. Mm-hmm. Like the dogs, it sounds true. Yeah, yeah, it's true. There is one sitting next to me um, as as I'm sitting here in the studio, a small cocker spaniel. You know, there's this. I think a really naive sense of fantasy that if I just think about it and wish about it and and think on it, it's going to happen. And um, it's much more complicated than that because you are having hundreds of thousands of thoughts run through you every day. And those thoughts are not necessarily your own. Most of them probably belong somewhere else. 
What, what do you mean? So by, it what, is what, true. What, it is what, what, do you, true. what do you mean by that? They belong somewhere else. I, you know. What do no, you mean? they belong to someone else. They're coming through the street. You know, I had a guy from Australia who came to my workshop. He said, "I was walking down the streets of New York, and I started having all these really strange thoughts about different ethnic groups. I don't even know these ethnic groups. It's like they're swirling in the air. They're in the collective. They're in the they're in the media. They're in the mass mind, and we pick them up like antennas." So I think a much more accurate picture of manifestation is not what I want and how I get it, but what frequency I'm tuned into and what I'm broadcasting out. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. What frequency I'm tuned into. I don't, right, I, so I don't, this, yeah. this gets us to the, the bank account of manifestation, like where does the power come from, the creative power? It is, as far as I can see, a question of attention. That your greatest asset is your attention. And that's why everybody wants it. Your greatest capital asset. Because your attention is the way you interact and develop your process of creation. So it's not about, I say an affirmation for 20 minutes a day, the the Red Rolls Royce is in the garage. And then the other 24 hours and 40 minutes a day, I'm kind of concerned with who won the the baseball game. That's where my attention really is. So becoming aware and becoming cognizant of how our attention gets hooked and how our attention gets free and how our attention can become intention, that's, that's the work of the individual. But even then... Even then, you know, where do visions come from? Like, how does one get from vibrating at 500 megahertz a minute to 5,000? Usually, it happens through meeting someone or hearing an idea. Like, some, you, you tune in to something that is beyond where you've been, and it captures your heart, it captures your imagination, and it marshals the resources to begin to focus there. But it's not just you. you you've tuned into something. And most of us, every day, there are these angels floating down in the form of thoughts, kind of, you know, just pricking our attention. How about this? How about this? But we're too locked in or too busy to receive them. So spaciousness is very helpful. I'd like to unpack a little bit this idea that you were saying about attention and intention. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a right. lot of people jump pretty quickly just to intention. Here's my intentions. Here's my intentions. Yeah, and this is my whole point. Jumping on the train of intention without processing your attention, what generally happens is you wind up on a train to someplace else than you thought you'd be going. Because attention is a deep tapestry. It's a deep fabric of thought, feeling, form, perception, multiplicity it's it's very rich and and think about it just to jump out of that and say i want this this is what you know my little kids used to do you know i want to watch this program i want my milk and i want it now and then you get your milk and you know you now you want something else unprocessed intention does not solve the problem of desire and suffering it just exacerbates it so then in your view, what is the uh, empowering relationship to intention? How right. does attention and intention connect? 
I see two very clear portals of manifestation that connect these issues. And they're often thought of as separate, but I see them as, as, as very much intertwined with each other. The first one is awareness. Opening the field of awareness to becoming exquisitely aware of everything that is flirting with my attention, attracting my attention, or demanding my attention, so I can make more informed choices or guide my rudder to the to the area of the ocean or the sea that really feels more right for me. So the awareness is the open space, but the the other part that is a complement to awareness is the use of the imagination. So here's the thing. If we just jump from intention to intention, that is just a more sophisticated way of jumping from desire to desire, which got us ensnarled in the mess that we're in already. However, if we can open spaciously in awareness to what is really attracting our attention and what's really demanding our attention, which is often painful, that's step one, which is very much correlative with the first of the, um, in the Buddhist tradition of the Eightfold Path, which is right views. Look at, look at what's happening. Look at what's really on your plate, what's really attracting your attention. Not, don't go away from what's attracting your attention, escaping into some, something that you want that's not going to really deal with who you are. So that's step one. Step two is once you have a sense of what's attracting your attention, whether it's your indebtedness, whether it's your sexual depravity, whether it's your business, whatever it is, can you open the closed, clutching um, claws of judgment? Can we release the judgment around it? Because here's, here, here's the alchemical metaphor, Tammy. The human being is living suspended between opposites. North and south, east and west, should I be, eat meat? Should I be a vegetarian? Should I vaccinate? Should I not vaccinate? Should I start a business? Should I go to China and med- you know, We're suspended between opposites. If you're too shallow in the intention field, you just jump onto one side and then the other side drags you back. If you can open the field of awareness, which I, I, would, I would define awareness as generous patience with what is. If we can open that field and allow ourselves to literally be torn, suspended, open, broken open by, by the tremendous attention dramas and oppositions and realities of our lives, then what can be born is a healed vision. And that's what I'm looking for. Not just... I'm having problems with money. Let me envision myself having more money. That's not going to get to the root of what caused the problem in the first place. But if you can be deeply aware in all the ways that money is attracting your attention and release all the ways you think it should be, and the trust in the basic goodness of the universe allows the birth of a healed vision around money, not only how would I be more rich, but what would it look like to to be healed, for my community to be economically healed. That is a vision that can draw you into intention organically and not from a superficial ego platform. Mm -hmm. That's good, Rick. That's really clear. One of the things that in the beginning of our conversation you talked about was how you can't just ignore 
your personal history or your cultural history, and you even mentioned, you know, the land, what's happened on the land where you are. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm curious how that plays in. Why even, you know, bring up this issue of the land? That's a really good question, and I wish I had a really good answer. Um, I think... um, I don't know if his work applies as much for America as the rest of the world, as the European world, anyway. But I think I think Hellinger, Bert Hellinger, has has a good pulse on the power of ancestry and and things of this nature, where he where he says, you know, Hellinger, the Jesuit priest who does the family constellation therapy. I've heard of, of I've heard of his work. Yeah, he spent years as a missionary with the Zulus, and that's where he kind of understood the power of ancestry. But he says something, what it, which I think is, is very pertinent. He says you can you can move to a new country, you can change your name, you can you know you can build your own castle, but on some level deep within, you're always trying to heal something from the family of origin, from the culture. So, the land that we live on, the the history that we come from. I do not advocate drowning ourselves in it and you know making that our um, be-all and end-all, unless that's your particular calling. But I feel there is a richness in that that needs to imbue our own work so we have the blessings of our predecessors and don't pretend that, they, that they're not there. To have the blessing of your predecessor doesn't mean you have to follow or do what they did. But... If you learn who lived on the land before you, if you learn what went on here, if you know the flowers, as Gary Snyder puts it, um, you suddenly have a whole different level of support. And you begin to notice. I, I um, spoke to a group that started a little community, and and uh, they propitiated the spirits of the land. And I said, how do you know the spirits listened to you? They said, well, when the foxes started coming back, when the water started running again, we knew that we were doing something right. So the, the Greek kind of uh, vision of this was that there are many different realms of divinity, and you have the freedom and the right to go toward the one that you're aligned with, but it is a mistake to ignore the others, that everyone should have their due. So I, you know, how many times I've been in India in front of the, my friends, the Kaprewala, the cloth salesmen, before they eat or tea, they always throw a little bit on the ground just to offer it to the earth, to offer it to the birds, to, to, to kind of move into the, a, a greater sense of community. I think the greatest offering that is not acknowledged is the offering of attention. If we just paid more attention to the land we lived on and the people who came before us, we might start having a lot of good ideas. You know, I have a, a colleague um, who's a writer, and his father was a publisher. And so when he was growing up, he kept saying, I'm not going to publish books. I'm going to be creative. I'm going to write them. So he wrote, he wrote a lot of books, but none of them sold. And at some point he said, hmm, maybe I should kind of listen to some of the ancestral knowledge about how to publish and market books. Maybe that, that could work with my writing and not against it. Mm-hmm. Now, there are places where tragedy has occurred and and where the land is marked by that tragedy. And 
my sense is that if we are part of that land, our job is to help release the spirits that are still trapped and to help transmute that into a peaceful situation. A friend of mine was walking on the beach in uh, Malibu, and he came upon the most unworldly stones I have ever seen. Like, these stones were, they looked human, they looked like heads, but they were rocks. And when he, when he um, tuned into them, uh, he got a very clear um, sense that these stones were from the Shumash. And, and like he said, you know, people think the Shumash, you know, the tribes are extinct, but they're not. They're living in dream time, and, and, and they have a lot to share. So it's basically, this is the same issue as finding ways of connecting with ancestors or with luminaries from the past. It's not that we want to go backward. But we want to be at least translucent enough to allow these forces to imbue our work with their richness. That way it gets us out of the ego thing that this is my work, this is my vision. Mm -hmm. Think of someone like John Seed, you know, the eco-activist, who, who literally sees himself as a manifestation of the rainforest. And that has empowered um, amazing work. Now, now, what do you mean by uh, that, a, a manifestation of the rainforest? He doesn't see himself as a human being. He just sees, he says, I'm part of the rainforest, I've taken the form as a human, but I'm here to represent the rainforest and its interests. Very interesting. And a lesser, more believable for some people manifestation. This is um, a woman who told us a couple of weeks ago at a workshop, she said, look, I can create all the goals and action boards and lists that I want. However, when I feel that I'm responsible to someone, when, I'm, when I've made a promise to someone, all of a sudden I'm able to do what I wasn't able to do before. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious, Rick, if you put some of these ideas together and right. answered um, a question that the title of one of your Sounds True programs poses. It's, it's called The Beginner's Guide to Finding Your Perfect Job. Right. Now, granted, you recorded this program with us a while ago, but and I'm sure your thinking has, in, in some ways, you know, has roots in, in what you said before, and in some ways has changed. Right. Um, how could you put some of these ideas together to help okay. someone who might be All listening, right. who says, "I want to find my right, perfect let's, job"? Let's do that. The one I have to just add a couple of things here. Yeah, please. The one thing that we did, we did not discuss, which again, it's not necessarily individual, but. It's, it's very crucial to creating any type of um, viable work in any economic situation, and that is to come down to your own basic sense of well-being. Whether we call this abundance, whether we call this radical trust, whether we call this authenticity, I see four spokes on a wheel of manifestation, and one of them is well-being. And by that well-being, I mean developing the sense, or uncovering is perhaps a better word, the sense that it is completely all right and viable to be me, that I don't have to become someone else to enter into the workplace. Now, the way a lot of people discover this is by taking the time to connect with communities that really work for you, instead of trying to fit into a community that's bending you out of shape. Mm-hmm. So that's where the community issue comes in. Where are the communities? And by communities, I do not mean kind of hippie communes in the forest, okay? 
a business is a community, an institution is a community, um, a meditation center is a community, and most of us, I think, healthily will belong to many intersecting communities. But where are the communities that will recognize my talents and abilities and give me the space to explore uh, the communities that want my best and don't want me to be a copy of whomever? So step one, well-being, you know, really come from the sense of well-being. And step two, go into the communities of the past and future, the ancestors, the friends, the land that really support me, that allow me to be who I am. You know, if, if people are sensitive, more sensitive to the land, you'll see that there are places where you definitely feel you belong and places where you're always barking up the wrong tree. So we move from well-being to, to social affinity and from the community and the social affinity that allows us to be ourselves. then we can begin to incubate intentions. And there are different levels of intention. In my own work, I will speak of a vision which is an overarching what I can be, what we can be, versus or in, in partnership with a incremental trajectory which is having an intention that manifests within a period of time. But notice that intention is not developed in a vacuum. It's developed with others giving you feedback. It's developed until it's really solidified in yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the question of communities in large, which is, and this is really important for any product or service, which is how can my talent, my dream, my vocation, my this, how can my thing help the people around me? What, where is it of value? And one example of this, and I, I, I don't think this is just clever marketing. I think this is a real example of the upaya of intention, if you will, the skillful means of intention in communities. Someone like John Kabat-Zinn, who you know he could have he could have said. That he, he could have been a Buddhist meditation teacher. He could have been a molecular biologist turned yoga instructor. But at some point he said, who's my community, the medical people? Um, they really don't want to hear about Buddhism, but they really do want to hear about stress reduction. And mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is his product, is, is nothing but basic Buddhist meditation and mindfulness practice put in a language that can serve a particular community. And that, to me, is, is how a vocation is born. It's, it's, the, it's through the interaction. What are my people asking of me? How can I serve? Not just what's my vision. That makes some sense? It makes a lot of sense, yeah. yeah. Now, the vision also is collective. For example, we, we had an a amazing man who's come, he's come to three of my workshops at Esalen Institute. When he first came, he was a captain in the U.S. Army. Now he's way up the ladder. And we always processed, you know, with him, what is the, the vision, the best vision you can imagine for the armed forces? But his vision is not going to manifest unless he can convince a few other people in the Army to go in that direction. So, we, you know, the vision is there, but you have to understand if it is your dharma, if it is your job to kind of give the vision of the future, to help language the vision to the community, or to do the nuts and bolts of it. So one way is like, what's, you know, 
get the army together and say, what's the highest thing we can imagine for our work? You know, disaster control, ecological healing. I mean, so many things could be done with with that type of of power. But that doesn't mean it's going to be done if the center of gravity is still somewhere else. So vision is one thing, and active reality is another, and how they relate in your life has a lot to do with what's going to happen. No, no, Rick, this uh, series of interviews is called Insights at the Edge. And right. part of what I'm curious about is to find out in people's personal lives what they're working on that is currently their edge, if you will. I'm happy to talk about that. My edge is community. Um, I think the edge of manifestation is community. And by the way, uh, maybe community is not the exact works it has kind of connotations of you know social connotations but let me give you an example of what i'm talking about in just about every major holistic center that i've worked with the weekend workshop format is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking whereas the ongoing learning format is expanding people want to learn something over a period of time with other people as opposed to just getting a, a shot in the arm, because people want the learning community. So here's my edge, Timmy. I've been doing, we call it the Advanced Manifestation Group from the Advanced Manifestation Program. I've been doing these groups for years now, and um, we've done some experimenting, and we have some formats that work, but the edge for me is to help birth not live in communities. I don't think that's, that's necessary or helpful, but to help birth um, venues where people can come together and incubate their highest creative visions, bounce them off one another, actually accomplish something in a way that is holistic, synergistic, and fun. In order to get to that place, um, I have to, and here's my edge, in order to get to that place, I have to relinquish um, some hierarchical and financial position. That's what's become very clear to me. You mean in order to be part of some ongoing group like this, you're, you're not going to be able to like swoop in and get paid the way you used to? Right. And I, it's not going to work if if it's coming from the top down, whether I'm at the top or anyone else is at the top. Mm-hmm. It's going to work when enough people, which doesn't mean that people don't take their expertise and really work it, but it's, it's, I think it's going to happen when there's a sense of synergistic sharing that's making everyone more creative um, and where people really are encouraged to take that creative responsibility. So the way it's manifesting in our group, and we're having this ongoing discussion, instead of just having, like, we meet together once a month, and Rick does a meditation, and people talk, and, and we incubate projects, what if we what if we met more times, and what if one, at one point Rick could do a meditation, another meeting we'd do open space technology where everybody would present things that are really working with them, Another time we come in and present, you know, work with storytelling and movement. In other words, have a lot more um, participation. Now, this is an edge for me, and an edge is a place where you can fall off very easily. Yeah. 
but my sense is that um, oh, let me give you another example of what I'm talking about. Maybe this will be helpful. Every um, when I look through the catalogs and go online, all the places where people are speaking. I rarely, rarely see a place where there's dialogue. Even at conferences, it's, you know, X, Y, and Z get up and they say their thing and then they ask questions and everybody goes home. Or, you know, um, Joe Hill gets up and talks about the environment and Mary Morningstar gets up and talks about healing and then come to this workshop, come to that workshop. And to me, that's the old format of somebody, you know, kind of telling the audience how it is. I would love to see a, a venue where some of these people would get together and publicly not you know speak with one another and really generate work at generating and birthing what the new world is because I think that's how it's going to happen that's how the constitution happened that's where I think the edge is I think the edge is for people to start dialoguing in a in a in a more community minded way and less in top down i have the truth follow my formula 10 easy steps way but it's very tricky because if you look at blogs where this is you know the the other side is if everyone just comes in and gives their two cents with you know without even thinking about it that kind of waters it down to the lowest common denominator so it, it's it's an edge and that's the edge I'm on, and maybe I'll fall off it, and maybe I won't. I'm sure that, um, you know, you've thought about this as being the manifestation teacher, you know, leading the right. group, you know, blah, 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 even if you're stepping into more of a, a collective type of process, you're still right. the leader of the manifestation group and teaching these courses right. that, I mean, you have to ask yourself, have I manifested in my life to the level or I mean how do you look at that how do you evaluate your own level that's of very manifestation good. that's really good and that's and I think the beautiful thing about this question is that everyone has to answer it for themselves so how do you answer that for yourself is my curiosity that's really good um, peace freedom kindness patience and generosity are what I'm looking for and it's interesting I used to see it as my freedom is the abs- is the absence of anxiety like i don't i don't need money i don't want money i don't not want money i don't i want to be free with money i don't want to have to be anxious about money that would be my freedom you see not how much i have likewise with a relationship likewise with my house or my car and so one barometer for me is the absence of anxiety, but the other one that I've really tuned into recently is the ongoing feeling of and manifestation of kindness. Because kindness, to me, is the overflow. It means that I'm full. And to me, the fullness is being the witness of the divine grace happening at every moment being the ongoing present witness of the unfolding of miraculous reality and to be so present in it that I can be there whether you are in your penthouse in New York City or whether you're dying of cancer in the hospital, that I want to be there with you with an open heart. That's what I'm going for. So the process for me is um, every day to be really conscious of what triggers me and what what closes my heart 
and to you know to understand that to breathe through that and to understand that I can let it go because walking around this world with a closed heart is it just didn't do me any good and when I mean a closed heart I, I'm, I'm not just talking la di da um, if I can give you an example in my life I used to be very afraid of dying I was obsessed with death I read books I wrote books you know and you know reincarnation non-reincarnation and all of that vanished when I finally allowed my mind to sink into my heart it turned out I wasn't it wasn't death I was afraid of. it was the split between the mind and the heart so my job as I see it is ongoing sadhana or spiritual practice what connects that with manifestation is my fervent belief and conviction that if this cannot happen in the walk-a-day world where can it happen so I'm, I'm very serious that that you know someone asks, what is your practice I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm totally serious that my practice is every day is the water boiling over on the stove is my daughter falling and scraping her knee is you know the rent getting raised or someone getting thrown out of their house or the every day um, that to me is is it yeah. and Emerson had a beautiful line which I carry with me there are two lines I carry with me that I'd like to share Emerson said I am defeated every day but to victory I am born and another line that's really touched me is from uh, the movie um, Mickey Lemming's movie of Ramdas Fierce Grace where Larry Brilliant the doctor and devotee of Neem Karoli Baba says the amazing thing about being with Neem Karoli Baba was not that he loved everybody but that when I was with him, I loved everybody. That's the abundance. So, you know, Rick, I could talk to you for um, a really long time, but I think we'll close it here. I hope as a member of my community, and I really do think of you that way, a member of the Sounds True community, and one of my favorite authors to talk to, I hope we get to talk again (laughs) soon. I hope so, too, and um, I'll make it my business. Okay. Thank you. All right. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Please visit us at SoundsTrue.com and experience our award-winning audio programs for yourself. Programs that embrace the world's major spiritual traditions, as well as the arts and humanities, embodied by the leading authors, teachers, and visionary artists of our time. With every title, we strive to preserve the essential living wisdom of the author, artist, or spiritual teacher. Not only will you receive information, but you will receive the essential quality of a wisdom transmission between a teacher and a student. Many voices, one journey. Soundstrue.com